Good morning. If you have your Bibles, go with me to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. We will be in verses, uh, well, we'll be in a bunch of different verses, but uh, we're going to kind of reach back into last week a little bit and move forward, and then next week we'll come back and finish chapter 9, and then we'll move on to um, kind of the next big section in the book of Acts. Um, we get to see in two weeks the gospel move forward really for the first time as a major movement into the Gentiles, uh, which is really good news for us. So for now, we'll continue talking about Saul. Last week, we talked about the process of conversion, uh, not about uh, necessarily like um, regeneration and sanctification and justification and those aspects of, uh, of conversion, but uh, a little more um, uh, maybe on the experiential side, what happens in conversion as we saw here with Saul. Just to recap a little bit of that, because it's important for where we're going today, as clearly we're still in chapter 9. The three things we talked about is that in conversion, these three things take place. The first is this, God confronts with confronts with the truth. He confronts us with the truth. Those who are converted are confronted with the truth, particularly the truth about who He is, about who God is, and who we are. See, Saul didn't recognize God on the road to Damascus because God had, because Saul had created a God that was simply a making of his own mind. Certainly, it was influenced by the scriptures, but it was. You understand, he 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 understood the scriptures, but he understood them at least from a a very general perspective. He misunderstood them greatly. So he had aspects of who God was, but it's clear, uh, particularly as you read Paul's further writings, that he missed the God of the Bible. And so the God of the Bible is before him, and Saul does not recognize this God. We talked about how we oftentimes, uh, even those who who are converted, find ourselves worshiping a God of our own making, a God that we've created with our own mind. The second thing we talked about in conversion is that God reveals our darkness. That if someone is to be converted, their darkness must be revealed. Otherwise, what's the need for salvation, right? What's the need for redemption? What's the need of being rescued if I don't know what I'm being rescued from? And so, in conversion, we see that God reveals darkness, the darkness of the person who's being converted. Saul's journey into blindness wasn't just a cool miracle to get Saul's attention. Blindness, spiritual blindness, darkness, evil hearts, all of that is sort of connected, kind of the same theme, if you will, as we read the Scriptures. He was blinded on purpose. God is showing us that Saul was on a journey through his darkness, Ultimately, through his darkness toward the need for a Savior. And thirdly, conversion in conversion, God must embrace the one converted if one is to be truly converted. God embraces His own, welcomes them into His home, into His family, into His arms. It's no coincidence, it's no happenstance that Ananias calls Saul brother, the very person he was just 
saying, God, are you sure you want me to go talk to Saul? <laughs> like, he could arrest me on the spot, and I could be killed. It's no happenstance he calls him brother and lays his hands upon Saul. You see, God the loving Father had made a way for Saul. He sent Jesus to die for Saul. He sent Jesus to give new life to Saul's heart on the road to Damascus. And now the loving Father embraces Saul, the former persecutor of his very own children, as now one of his own. These are all parts of conversion, necessary parts of conversion. But let me ask you this question. Does your conversion, if you believe that you're a follower of Christ, that you've been converted, does this conversion, does your conversion story look like this one? I doubt it, right? I mean, at least I've heard many of your stories of conversion, and I've not heard someone talking about being on a road to Damascus, uh, struck by the glory of Jesus' face and blinded. But I Bet at some point, if you have been converted, God confronted you with the truth that He is real. And that the God, however developed He is in your mind, that you have created on your own, is not the real God. Again, it might be a youngster. and You might have been 30 years old. But at some point, you had to have been confronted with the truth that the God of the Bible is the real God. Second, I doubt that you have been physically blinded. Maybe you have, but I, 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 again, I don't know of any of these stories in here. However, somehow God must have shown you your darkness and need for a Savior. However, He chose to do that. It might have been through the prodding of another person. It might have been through uh, just you and the Scriptures alone. But somehow God has shown you your need for a Savior. And, and honestly, I mean, you had to understand that, right? That's a growing understanding, but it has to start somewhere. Just like your understanding of who God is, right? The God of the Bible. My view of who God is is still flawed. It's still imperfect. Because I don't understand all of the Scriptures and what He's revealed to us. Um, but it had to start somewhere with a renouncing of the God that I've created and an affirmation of the God of the Scriptures. Same thing here. A recognition of my own filthy, my own self-righteousness that is as filthy rags in order to recognize that I have a need for a Savior. And my understanding of my own darkness and the understanding of my own need for a Savior is certainly something that should be growing and increasing. Right As you recognize God's holiness... Right? Think of it like a, like a V. You know, I recognize God's holiness, and on this side I recognize my sinfulness. And, and if I'm living by repentance and faith, then as I grow in my understanding of both of those things, then the cross that bridges the gap, right? That I, repentance and faith, that the cross gets bigger, and my cherishing of Christ gets greater. So I, anyways, I doubt you've been blinded, but... Sure, at some points, God has shown you your darkness and need for a Savior. You may not have had scales or things like scales fall off your eyes, but hopefully you have 
experience the embrace of the Father. Again, that looks different for different people. It doesn't have to be an emotional experience, but it certainly should tug on your heart. But nevertheless, the embrace of the Father. Everyone's conversion, though, looks different. Something we have to be very careful about. But we have to be very careful that we, we don't say, in the name of everyone's conversion looks different, that we're also not afraid to draw lines of certainty, draw, li- or draw lines of, of clarity, if you will. The Scriptures give us clear lines that we can draw around the idea of conversion. Everyone's conversion looks different. But if you are converted then you will have these aspects we've talked about to, to some level and to, to some varying degrees. And then we, if we're thinking about ourselves, have to be careful that we don't pigeonhole these different aspects to, to look a very certain or specific way. That's why I try to give you some varying degrees or examples of these items. But we also have to be careful that we don't just go, oh, well, you know, God knows. And I don't. Let me ask you this question. The question for us this morning really is this. How do I know that I am converted? How do I know that I am converted? I mean, we, we preach through 1 John, right? I write these things so that you would know. Uh, we've worked through that. So here we are in the book of Acts kind of asking a similar question. How do I know if my roommate is converted? How do I know if my children or my brothers or sisters are converted? How do I know if my coworkers are converted? We say, oh, you know, this person talked about God. That must mean they're converted. Or, oh, this political leader said a prayer. That must mean they're converted. The difficulty here is, again, conversion experiences are so different. And the thing we have to be careful of, even as we look at Paul's conversion experience, we have to be careful that we don't look at the details too closely. Because if we look at the details too closely, we'll get wrapped up and go, okay, well then mine has to look this way, or my child's has to look this way. But I would say this, same thing, again, as we look at this passage, that what we must look at, if we're to answer this question of how do I know if I'm converted or if so-and-so is converted? We, the details of the conversion story are really hard. What we should look at is the results. What's the fruit of that? You know, it's interesting as I uh, explored over this past number of months that wanting to plant uh, some apple trees on our family's property. Uh, and because of cross-pollination, and when a bee pollinates this apple tree and goes over this apple tree, when those seeds come from that tree and are planted, it may not produce the same kind of fruit, that, the same kind of apple that that tree uh, was producing. So if you have like a gala apple, or as my wife likes Honeycrisp apples, my family likes Honeycrisp, they have to like the most expensive ones. Uh, I'm like, wow, this is, whoa. Yeah, anyways, uh, you can take that Honeycrisp apple tree and plant those seeds, and you may not get a Honeycrisp apple tree. You might get a Gala apple tree or a Fuji apple tree or whatever happened to be within proximity where a bee could cross-pollinate. Anyways, my point is this, is that you won't know what kind of apple tree that tree is until you examine the fruit that falls from that 
tree. You won't know what kind of apple tree it is until the results take place. And so the same thing I think is true here. We have to look at the results, and we're going to look at the results here with Saul. Again, we have to be cautious. I have two warnings for us as we do this. One is we, we cannot get caught up in the details lest we set unbiblical standards and unbiblical precedents. We have to be very, very careful that we don't do that. Two, that my other warning, pastoral warning for us is this. Oftentimes, those who question their conversion are sometimes the last ones that should be questioning their conversions. And those who aren't questioning their conversions are oftentimes the very ones who should be questioning it. So as we go, all of the... Man, this is so weird using paper. My goodness. I feel like I, I just have to move on to the next one, and I can't ever... You know, anyways, here we go. I was whining to my wife this morning about it, and said that. Well, let's just hope I don't need something back on page one once I get on page three, because then I'll just get lost. And All right, here we go. All of these fruits. So these fruits, I'm going to get, I don't know, this four or five, how many blanks you got on there. Fruits that we see in this passage of someone who is truly converted. And these things, I believe, must be present to some degree. Must be present to some degree. Be careful that we don't assign a certain degree to these fruit. But the degree is there. The the item is there to some degree. The first is this, a desire for intimacy with God. A desire for intimacy with God. Let's read verse 9 through 11. So we're reaching back. And for three days he was without sight, Saul that is, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias... And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. We need to connect. I, I want us to help us connect a couple things real quick. You can write down this passage and go look at it later. But the first is this Luke 20, verse 47. Jesus is speaking about the church leaders. Pharisees, the Sanhedrins, the Sadducees, so on and so forth. And he says, in verse 47, he says this, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Jesus, in this passage in Luke 20, is condemning the religious leaders here for their dutiful and self-righteous prayers. So Jesus draws a distinction between prayers that are actually worthy of condemnation and prayers that are, that are worthy before the Lord. So here Jesus is condemning the religious leaders' prayers in Luke 20. They were not really praying to God. That's the key. They were praying as a religious act. And again, don't miss this. Jesus condemns their prayers. Matter of fact, he says they are worthy of greater condemnation. So these were not the acts of those who had intimacy with the Father. It was the religious acts of the fake. So don't miss that in Luke 20. But here, Jesus says to Ananias, when you find Saul, he is praying. In this passage, the the implication is that this is a praiseworthy thing. This This is something that is honoring to God. This is a good thing that is happening. 
right? Because you're going to go to a dangerous man. But hey, listen, Ananias, he's praying. He's talking to me. This is the praying of a man who is walking with God, albeit the beginning of his journey, but nonetheless, he is walking with the Lord. It says he is fasting and praying. He's gone without eating, without drink. That's no happenstance. That's not just a, a pointless uh, or a random detail to the story. He's fasting. He's praying. He is seeking to know the Lord. He wants to know the embrace of the Father. Put it this way. He wants to cherish and understand anew that he is cherished by the Father. Listen, the, the whole picture here is it's not the prayers of a self-righteous man doing a business transaction. Instead, it's the prayers of a man desiring intimacy with God. On that note, it's, I want to ask this question. How many times our prayers look like business transactions? Our prayers are nothing more Sometimes our prayers are nothing more than business transactions. Jesus died for me, so I guess that means that I need to pray. Or I want to be thought of well, so I guess I should pray. I want this to happen in my life, so I suppose I should pray. Those things, that act of praying is nothing more than an exchange of goods and services you hope. When, I, when I'm thinking about my own heart, when I'm thinking about leading other people and, and trying to assess like fruit and where they're at, one of the things that like uh, bothers me most pastorally is to see a, a lack of I love the Father. I want to know the Father. And so the question is, is when we pray, which is one of the primary means in which we experience intimacy with the Father, is it more like a business transaction or is it more like a conversation with your Father? I, I, I couldn't imagine, I, I don't I'll speculate here for a second, but Paul is who knows all these scriptures about the Lord and it's all being rewritten in his mind right now, like, like reinterpreted and understanding anew. And I'm sure Saul is going, oh, that was Jesus on that page and it was Jesus at the Red Sea and it was Jesus at the Passover and it was Jesus who's going to crush the serpent's head and it was Jesus who's going to be a blessing through Abraham and it was Jesus who David was pointing to and it was Jesus who slayed the giant for us and it was Jesus and he's rethinking all these things in his head and he's going father it pleased you to crush him for me listen real praying is when you talk to God as father the desire to know God know the Lord and walk with him the desire to cherish the father again this is present at varying degrees but it must be present if you were to ask yourself Am I converted? Ask yourself, do I have a desire to know the Father? 
to cherish Him. I'm asking about my kids. Do they have a desire to know God? To, to not just know Him up here, but to know Him in here, right? To be intimate with the Father. Again, a converted person has a desire for intimacy. And second, a desire, a converted person has a desire for community with the saints. Verses 4 through 5. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. In verse 18 through 19, immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. And for some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus. That was probably actually a rather lengthy time he was there, the end of verse 19. But what I want you to see particularly is Jesus says to Saul on the road, Saul, you are persecuting me. But how is that possible, right? We, we talked about this a little bit last week. How is that possible? What Jesus is implying here is that he is present in every Christian. So much so that when Paul is persecuting a Christian, he's actually persecuting Jesus himself. I mean, that's, I mean, I mean you got to understand, like, for Saul at this moment, right? God dwells where? The temple. His presence is in the temple. And if this is Jesus, the blessed Son of God, the Messiah, He's saying to Saul, I don't dwell in the temple any longer. I dwell in the people whom you are persecuting. This is a very profound thing. And here's the implication for us. If you desire Christ, if you desire to know Christ, you desire to be intimate with Christ, or, or the Father, the Trinity, if you will, but particularly Christ, He said, I dwell in my people. If you desire Christ, then you will desire to see Him in your brothers and sisters. Let me read you a quote from Timothy Kelly. He says this, When you become a Christian, you don't get saved into a one-on-one relationship with Jesus. You get saved into a body of other believers, all of whom are a part of Christ. Jesus in this passage is saying, I am in every Christian. We've talked about this as a church, like when Christ takes up residence in our lives, things happen, things change. Listen, here's the implication of this passage. You can't just know Jesus through one-on-one prayer. Like You can know part of Him, but you will not know Him fully. Instead, you have to be deeply involved in community because, frankly, there is a lot of Jesus that you will not see anywhere else besides the face of your sister or your brother. Listen, they're going to understand and know facets of Christ and, and, and show that and, and, and bring that to bear on your life that you've not gotten around to knowing or gotten around to studying or your journey looks a little bit different. So God uses your life to, to show a facet of Christ and, and His glory to your brother and sister over here. And I tried to look it up. I, I remember preaching a, 
in Ephesians, I think it was three or four, and I couldn't find exactly which sermon it was, but I remember we talked about like, like that is the way we experience the fullness of Christ, is when we experience it in part through our brothers and sisters. Listen, there is no Lone Ranger Christianity. But let's ask this question, what does this communion look like? What does this, uh, this community look like? Just a couple practical things here. If it's all about Jesus, then it's all about knowing Him within community. So it's about experiencing Him, about knowing Him, about being clarified in our understanding of Him, if indeed He dwells within His people. So, so the same is true. If I persecute a Christian, I'm persecuting Jesus. But if I care for a brother or sister, I'm caring for Jesus, right? His presence is there. If I neglect a brother or sister, I am neglecting Christ. If I embrace a brother or sister as a brother or sister, I am helping them experience Christ, and I am embracing Christ. Listen, this means if it's about Christ, then it's not about having friends that you can hang out with and talk about the things you like to talk about. That's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just that's not the primary goal. Listen, you can do that with a person who doesn't know Jesus. As a matter of fact, you probably should do that. It also means it's not about necessarily knowing everybody intimately. I just want to be careful that, again, that we're not setting up unbiblical requirements and unbiblical standards when we think about the idea of desiring community, desiring to know Christ through community. What I have found is just an observation that usually the people who want to know everybody don't want to be known deeply and intimately. And so they are able to hide the deepest parts of their hearts by claiming, I just want to know everybody. Listen, communion with the saints, community with the saints is about each of us making known the Christ in us to others so that we can all know His fullness. He says to Saul, you're persecuting me as you persecute. Man, what a gift. Like, what a gift we have to get to know another facet of Christ in another believer because he dwells in him or her. One practical thing, again, just a practical exhortation to help us in this direction is that one of the things we need to focus on when we think of other people is, is trying to find the grace of God in their lives. Try to find the evidence of Christ in their life, the grace of God in their lives. I, if you're anything like me, I tend to be pessimistic and tend to look for the negative things. There, there's, a, there's a time for that. There's a time for that. But we should be looking to see the grace of God in other people's lives. Listen, a converted person desires deep, intimate relationships. Again, it had to be with 1,500 people. Why? Because it's within the body that we help each other know Jesus. Third aspect, or third fruit, a desire to talk about the good news of Jesus. A desire to talk about the good news of Jesus. Um, Notice I didn't say the uh, desire to read through a track. I didn't say a, a desire to 
post something really cool on Facebook about Jesus. Or tweet. Or have a bumper sticker. It's a desire to talk about the good news of Jesus. 9, 20 through 22, he says this, And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem on those who call upon his name? And was he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Now again, if we were going to take the details of the story and push it too hard, we would say, right, well, he went to the synagogues and he went to the, the places of, of influence and power and we must go do that too. I, I, think, I think we're pushing the text too far. But what we do see is that he began proclaiming the good news of Jesus. For each of us, that's going to look different. It's going to be in different avenues. Here's the reality. We talk about the things we love. We tell others about the things we love. The, thing that has, the things that have captured our affections. If you're around me for brief moments here and there, you know I like to talk about food. Uh, not just food for fuel's sake, but food for delight's sake. So not just edible food, but good food. There's a difference. A recent enjoyment, at least for a short time, has been oysters. Uh, I know. I know. Uh, so much so for my birthday, we and the boys, really just me, we shucked 30 of them, uh, and our whole family uh, ate them, except for uh, Henry. So Silas had one. The other boys and Sarah all tore it up. So I'll leave it at that, because some of you I know are like, are like ugh, oysters. <laughs> Moving on. Why, why do we, we talk about the things we love? Why? Because the th- we think about the things we love and we talk about the things we dwell upon. I, I mean, think about it. Saul had been dwelling upon God and then now his, his understanding has completely switched. We talk about the things we love. So, so obviously, if we're talking about the good news of Jesus, then ideally here, it's representative of us being in love with Christ, right? With the good news of Jesus. Now listen, I, I, you know, I poked fun at a track or posting something on Facebook. I, th- those might be potential avenues of talking about the good news of Jesus. So I don't want to uh, put those down, but I want us to be careful that we are thinking through effectiveness. That we are thinking through what will be most effective to the people. Like, we're supposed to be shrewd, right? We're supposed to be blameless. We're supposed to be careful. We're supposed to... Will this be effective to the people that I'm trying to reach? That's a, a very important question. Then the second question we need to ask is, am I just taking the easy way out? Because those are easy ways for most people. Building a relationship with the person next door is much harder. So I want you to be careful. Are you taking the easy way out so that you can check the box of I shared the good news of Jesus? 
you know, also we grow in strength in the things we love. So we don't just talk about the things we love, we talk about them because we grow in strength in the things we love. Paul grew in knowledge and strength such that he confounded the Jews. Now you say, well, that's fine, uh, you know, because he's, that's Saul, right? He, he knew all the scriptures really well, and, and so certainly he confounded them. No, he, he's confounding them about something that they were deeply against. Now listen, here's the reality. You will grow in knowing God and knowing the good news of Jesus if you love Him. You see, a truly converted person will talk about the good news of Jesus. Why? Why? Because they're aware of their need for a Savior and how gracious God is to give them repentance and faith in that Savior. Now listen, some of you talk about Jesus all the time. But here's my question. Are they always light, fluffy, shallow conversations about Jesus? Those are fine sometimes. Are we having serious and deep, enriching, edifying conversations about who Christ is? That may not happen every day. So what I'm saying is like, oh, you know, you're your coworker. Oh, you know, I'm just blessed today, and you know, God is good, and you know, that's good. But at some point, you got to move beyond that. Do you know? I would be on my way to hell if God had not rescued me. Here's how he did that. Listen, a converted person, albeit is growing, but nonetheless he talks about, she talks about the good news of Jesus. A person who's been converted also has a willingness to sacrifice. A willingness to sacrifice. Again, we'd be careful that we don't Put unbiblical standards on here, right? Everyone in their journey, God has brought to a different level of ability and willingness to sacrifice. But nevertheless, there, there has to be this inward desire to lay your life down for other people, for the glory of God. Let's read verse 23 through 30. When many days had passed... The Jews plotted to kill him, Saul, that is. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples taught him by night, or took him by night, and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. And so he went in and out among them at Jerusalem preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Multiple things I want you to see here. In verse 26, it says, And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. I want you to pick up on the fact that he is 
sacrifice. He is suffering even in the act of giving himself to a community of believers. They did not accept him initially. Think about what Paul is going through at this point. He had this terrible past of killing these people. And now he desires to be a part of them, and they reject him initially. I did I, no, 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 I don't, no, uh, uh. So what's, what's, what's to say Saul did? Well, fine, I'll go down to the church down the road. What's he, what's he do? He perseveres in fellowship. Let me ask you this question. Could you imagine being a new person walking into a community of people and trying to build relationships? I mean, I say that kind of funny because you should probably have all experienced that to some extent. To put yourself out there, right? What if everyone knew about your sin? What if everyone in that new group knew about your sin? What if everyone knew that you didn't vote the same way they did in the previous election? What if everyone knew about your unfortunate past that wasn't sin on your part, but was sin done to you, and it was nasty and horrible, but people knew that about you? Like, that would be hard, right? It'd be hard to walk into that community of believers to, to, to find relationships. This, this, this is what's going on with Paul. They knew his past. A self-righteous persecutor of those who had faith in Christ. Listen, I, I don't intend to give absolutes here because I don't think the passage is giving absolutes that, that Paul sacrifices by staying and that there's never a time to go. I'm, I'm not giving an absolute. I don't think the passage is doing that. But what we clearly see that is praiseworthy in this passage is that Paul stayed. It was hard. But he stayed. On the flip side of this, right? So for those who are more on the, maybe the receiving end of this, we all need to take a look at Barnabas in this passage. We all need to take a look at Barnabas. Some of us need to be a Barnabas to someone like this. Someone who takes them by the hand and says, you know what? Let's come around this person. Let's invite this person. Let's welcome this person. Let's love this person. Let's care for this person. I mean, what if God brought an entire group of people with a completely different culture into our church? Would you be more like Barnabas? Who says, you know what, Let's, let's embrace the good that is here. Let's welcome the good that is here. A willingness to sacrifice. Moving on to that, he says this. Listen, we suffer as chosen instruments for his glory. Look at verse 16. We didn't read this, but reaching back to last week, he says this about Saul. For I will show him, Saul that is, how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So I'm going to show Saul how much he must suffer for the sake of the name of Jesus. 
And I want to point out to you a few things as we think about the willingness of a convert to sacrifice. The first is this. Suffering is not just something that God responds to. It is something that He providentially orchestrates every time. Let me put it a different way. Your suffering is God's plan. Some of you may not be comfortable with this, but I'm comfortable with saying He is the one who makes it happen. And say that He's the one who does the sin. He is the one that is behind it, that is orchestrating it. Again, I know that makes some of you very uncomfortable. But he, what's he just say in this? I, I will show him how much he must suffer. I will do that. Jesus says, I will do that. I'm going to show him how much he must suffer. But listen, listen. If God doesn't orchestrate the suffering, then he could have never guaranteed the cross. And you know what that means for you and I. He could have never guaranteed the cross. Instead, he orchestrates the suffering in which Christ goes through. Every detail. And then he says this. This is the other thing I want you to pick up here. Is that we suffer for the sake of my name, he says. Listen. We understand that suffering is for our good. And we'll get to that in just a second. But it serves the purpose of a great God who is orchestrating it all so that if you remember from Ephesians, or if you've read Ephesians, so that Jesus would arise at the end of time as the point of it all, for His name's sake. So think about that. So when you're thinking about, I'm suffering right now, or, or whatever sacrifice that I am making right now, that yes, it's for my good, and that should be encouraging to our hearts, but realize this, it is for His glory as well. That means that my suffering right now in this moment is for my good, but it's not just for me. It's not just for my good. It serves an eternal purpose. It serves the purpose of glorifying an eternal being. Wow, like that's purpose. Wow. So what I'm going through right now can be for his name. But we do also suffer because sacrifice and suffering is good for our souls as well, our hearts, our minds. So the question is, how is it that suffering and sacrifice is good for us? I'm just going to give you one practical example of why this is good for Saul, why this is good for us. And that is this. All of us need less of us and more of Christ. All of us need less of us and more of Christ. Do you understand that self-dependence, self-aggrandizement, self-promotion is the antithesis of Christ-exalting, Christ-promoting dependence? They are mutually exclusive. When we want to make much of us, 
we necessarily cannot be making much of Christ unless we are making much of the Christ in us. Listen, what I'm talking about here is the idea of to die to ourselves and live unto Christ. Colossians 3.17, And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. All in His name, not in our name. Here's the point I'm trying to make. Someone dying to self is a person who has been truly converted. That's what Jesus is going to do to Saul. He's going to show him how much he must suffer. For what reason? For his name's sake, not for Saul's name's sake. So what he's saying is, I am going to walk Saul through a life of him dying to himself so that he might live for me. And we know that God only does good for His children. Here's what I don't mean. I don't mean you're doing more acts of service for others. The question is more like, are you doing it more and more the way others need it for their good and for His glory? Or are you doing it more and more no matter what you get from it? Someone sacrificing, someone who is truly an instrument for His mercy is one who is so full or is being filled up with Christ that they don't need anything other than Christ in order to give to others, in order to sacrifice for others, in order to suffer. Again, be careful that we don't like, okay, because you're not willing to sacrifice to this much, you must not be converted. I'm talking about a willingness to sacrifice a willingness to suffer for his name's sake no matter how small it might be is it growing is it there you see suffering and sacrifice help us abdicate self it helps us renounce our thrones understand Saul comes into this picture with this great mighty throne right this throne of self-righteousness this throne of I'm this awesome what's he say later I was the the chief of Pharisees or I don't forget exactly how he says it but he says I'm the 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 grand one right I I had it I was the best of the best what's he say I had this throne I sat on and Jesus says I'm going to help Saul renounce his throne Let me read to you a, a quote from C.S. Lewis that I heard from, that Keller quoted. He said this, <clears throat> But there must be a real giving up of the self. You must throw it away blindly, so to speak. Christ will indeed give you a real personality, but you must not go to Him for the sake of that, as long as your own personality is what you are bothering about, you are not going to Him at all. The very first step is to try to forget about the self altogether. Your real new self, which is Christ's and also yours, and yours just because it is His, will not come as long as you're looking for it. It will come when you're looking for Him. Does that sound strange? The same principle holds, you know, for more everyday matters. Even in social life, you will never make a good impression on other people until you stop thinking about what sort of impression you are making. Even in literature and art, no man who bothers about originality will ever be original. Whereas if you simply try to tell the truth, 
Without carrying two pence, how often it has been told before, you will, nine times out of ten, become original without ever having noticed it. But then he goes on, listen to this. The principle runs through all of life from top to bottom. Give up yourself, and you will find your real self. Lose your life, and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day, and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being, and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will ever be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find Him. And with Him, everything else thrown in. Why is suffering sacrifice good for us? Because it shows us the end of ourselves. It empties us of ourselves, of our thrones, of our self-righteousness, of our our kingdoms and what we want, and it fills us up with what we were meant to be filled with, the glory and goodness of God. How is it that someone who is converted can be so self-giving? Lastly, I think we see is that someone truly converted has a fear of the Lord and a restfulness in Him a fear of the Lord and a restfulness in Him. Verse 31 says this, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It multiplied. It's just such a profound little verse here, just tagged right at the end because next we're going to move on to Peter and Right here, right here in the, at the end of this. I mean, think about what's being said. Had peace. They had peace. What just happened in the verses before? They had to rescue Saul and lower him out the window. The Jews were plotting to kill him. Circumstantial peace was not present. It's a different kind of peace. A different kind of comfort. A different kind of fear. A greater fear than fear of the Jews. Think about even back to Ananias, right? What did he, certainly he feared Saul. I mean, there was very, there's nothing wrong with him going like, uh, he just tried to kill us. But who did he fear greater in that moment? He didn't fear Saul supremely. He feared God supremely. He feared God. That's why he went. How did they have peace? Because they were walking in the fear of the Lord. Listen, the church was being persecuted. The church was dying. It was, the church was sacrificed. And the church was suffering. And yet, it multiplied. The converts were converting more people. The church was growing. How? Because they trusted God and they rested in the Holy Spirit. They trusted God. They rested in the Holy Spirit. They had faith in God's promises. had faith that God was who he said he was and God would do what he said he would do. 
So we can be in the middle of the greatest battle or in the midst of the most hurtful suffering. And we can have a peace and a, and a comfort that surpasses it. That's what we see going on here in Acts. That whether they, listen, they had, they had a, a faith in God's promises, that whether they died naturally or they died from persecution, they would rise unto new life in Christ because they believed that Christ had died for their sins and that He had been raised again unto new life. Right, again, it's the, the, the picture that they're preaching Christ, Christ crucified, Christ resurrected, and they fear God supremely, resting in His promises. They believed it. They trusted God and they rested in God. Dave Harvey says this, Faith doesn't cinch to circumstances. It cinches to promises. See, faith doesn't grab a hold of the circumstances. It doesn't tether itself to circumstances. It doesn't grab a hold of circumstances as though its life and goodness depends on it. It grabs a hold of it tethers itself, it tightens itself to God's promises. It says, I can't do anything without believing that God is who He said He is and God will do as He has said He will do. Listen, why? That, that, that's unchangeable, right? That's, that's not, that doesn't move and shift as the wind shifts and circumstances change. Why? Because God never changes. His promises never change. You see, true converts need deep relationships with people who love Jesus so that they can know more of Jesus. And they know and love intimacy with the Father. Again, however infantile it might be or however fresh and new that faith and that intimacy might be, but it's still there. I want to know God. I want to know Christ through His people. True converts talk about the good news of Jesus. Why? Because that's what's on their hearts. That's what's on their minds. True converts are dying to self every day as they are filled more and more with Christ. And lastly, true converts trust the good Father and rest in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Again, all of these at different measures for different people, but still present. Because when the Lord takes up residence in His people's lives, He changes them. He brings about this desire to love God to know God, to cherish Him. He brings with His desire to, to know Christ through other people and to talk about the good news of Christ and to, to suffer, to sacrifice for His name's sake. And He brings about a fear of the Lord and a restfulness in Him. Let's pray. Uh, dear gracious Father, thank You for, <clears throat> thank You for giving us this incredible story, this marvelous example of, of your work, your work through the Spirit, your work in 
Saul's life for us to look at, for us to watch, for us to see now greater fruit begin to unfold, or not necessarily greater, but, but more of the same fruit to unfold as we watch the ministry of Saul here. Father, help us even in this endeavor to not worship or, or to think uh, great about Saul, but to think great about the Christ that is in Saul, the Christ that is working in Saul. And the same is true of us, Father. Let us not think great and mighty thoughts about us, but only thoughts, humble thoughts of the Spirit's work in us. Father, help us to, to appropriately and carefully look at the fruit in our own lives Father, give us the courage and the humility to ask brothers and sisters to help us look at the fruit in our own lives. Father, let the Word measure us. Let the Word of God size us up. May we look into it with the help of our brothers and sisters to, to ask the question, am I truly converted? Are my children converted? Is my coworker converted? Are my roommates converted? Is this... And Father, uh, may we be humble as we do this. I thank you for giving us these markers, if you will, these fruits, these evidences that we can look to. I thank you for your grace, the work of your spirit. Father, please continue to give us an increasing desire to know you and an increasing desire for these other fruits that should be present in our lives if we are converted. Father, and if there is someone here that's not, and they're going, I don't, I don't know if I, I don't think I am, Father, may, may they find rest in the good news of Jesus today. May they cast their righteousness aside and trust in the, the payment for their sin done on the cross by Jesus, and may they trust in His righteousness and His righteousness alone. I'll help all of us to do this today. So in your Son's name we pray. Amen.